You know, supply is still constrained, but it's been growing every week. I think we're going to be close to a 15 million dose a week run rate as we get into uh, into March. So there's substantial supply coming online. Once we get into April, supply should ramp really quickly, especially if J&J gets its vaccine approved at some point in March. I think we're going to have um, more supply than demand as we get into April. In April, according to Scott Gottlieb, who's been my favorite guy on this since it broke about a year ago, um, saying we're going to have more supply of vaccine than the demand for it. Wow. In a, in a few weeks, really. I mean, because it's dang near March. Well, where's mine? Start jabbing me. I'm ready. Um, Anecdotally, the number of people in my life who have been sharing, hey, I got my first shot today, it is, it is growing noticeably from my sphere of influence. We're still at, I think, about 12.5 million across the entire country, but it's, you know, it's growing every single day. Um, we still have the people that refuse to get it, won't get it. Um, I'm looking up at uh, Good Morning America. Can employers require the vaccine? Some waitress said she didn't want to get it because she is pregnant and she was worried about it, and they fired her because she wouldn't get it. I oh come on! Think employers can make you get it? Um, yeah, there are various ways to do that, as we've discussed with Craig, the healthcare guru. But pregnant lady, there haven't been studies on uh, on reactions. Uh, by the unborn. I, my sympathies are with her. I have zero fears about the vaccine for myself. If my wife was pregnant, I would not be uh, super excited about her trying that out. I would definitely be reading everything I could and trying to come to an intelligent uh, conclusion. They have no but... idea. There's no way they have any idea how it affects you know, the fertility at that level. Right, right. I mean, they might think they know, but they don't know for sure. And you're not going to mess with the life of your child. So, again, my sympathy, I'm not... Uh, you know, I don't have a lot of sympathy for a lot of the anti-vax crowd, but that gal is in an absolutely defensible position. But in general, people get are just so shot. stupid. Yeah. So here, here. I, I wanted to go. Or, to... If you don't want it, do me a favor. Go to get it, grab it, and bring it to the radio station, and I'll jab myself. So there were a couple of articles that I came across about how major media, focusing on the New York Times specifically in a couple of cases, has worked so hard to make this scarier than it even is. It's one of the worst things that has happened to humanity, but they're going out of their way to make it even sound worse. And there were some mm-hmm. examples. I can't remember where I came across it, how they started digging into the numbers on the New York Times Daily Tracker for New York, for instance, of uh, numbers of hospitalizations and cases. And somebody who is smart said, that doesn't sound right to me. And they started looking into it, and they couldn't figure out and the New York Times hasn't told them, where are you getting these numbers? They don't match up with anything that I see anywhere. Wow. What What is going on there? So huh. found that kind of interesting on its own. Um, yeah. If maybe the, 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 the speculation was that they're kind of boosting up the numbers through some fudgy math to try to justify shutdowns throughout that whole period and that sort of thing. I don't know. And then a separate uh, article in the New York Times about the New York Times was about how we're not giving enough credit to um, how great these vaccines are. I'll just read from the article. Right now, public discussion of the vaccines is full of warnings about their limitations. They're not 100% effective. Even vaccinated people may be able to spread the virus, and people shouldn't change their behavior once they get their shots. These warnings have a basis in truth, just as it's true that masks are imperfect. But the sum total of the warnings is misleading, as I heard from multiple doctors and epidemiologists last week quoting some of the top people in America on this from various institutions. It's driving me a little crazy, said this doctor. 
Um, we're underselling the vaccine, says this other epidemiologist. It's going to save your life. That's where the emphasis should be, said a different doctor. And the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are essentially 100% effective against getting serious disease, said um, the director of the Vaccine Education Center uh, in Philadelphia. It's ridiculously encouraging. So getting into some of these numbers on this and why they, why they, they say this. The Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, the only two approved in the United States, are among the best vaccines that have ever been created by mankind, with effectiveness right at about 95% after two doses. That's on par with vaccines for chickenpox and measles. You add a vaccine that doesn't even need to be so effective to reduce cases sharply and uh, crush the pandemic. I mean, it doesn't have to be that good to get where we want to be. If anything, the 95% number understates the effectiveness. This hasn't been pointed out enough. Because it counts anyone who comes down with even a mild case of COVID as a failure. Right. It's like rating the safety equipment on a car based on all accidents and not pointing out that, oh, it completely eliminates fatal accidents. You will never be killed in this car. So it's not 94% effective. It's 100% effective. So there's a a 6 in 100 chance I'll get in a fender bender. I don't care. Yeah, why would that even be part of the story? Well, Yeah, tell me about fatal wrecks and and devastating wrecks where where my life has changed. Um, They went through the numbers on that and the number of people that actually ended up in the the, the hospital or died. How many people contracted a severe COVID case of 32,000 people that received the Moderna or Pfizer? One. One person got a severe case of COVID of the 32,000 people that they followed that had gotten it. That means it's almost 100% effective. Right. I got right. A Nobody little... cares if they get the sniffles. It's like the fender bender. I got a little more on that after this. A quick word from our friends at CarShield. Speaking of protecting yourself on the road, thanks to CarShield, you can have maximum safety on the road for a low month-to-month cost. They have uh, 24-7 nationwide roadside assistance. They also help protect you from expensive car repairs. In fact, uh, plans from CarShield can save you thousands for a covered repair. I haven't had a lot of cars with warranties because I tend not to buy new cars, so something like CarShield's perfect for me. But even if you have a new car, you know, at some point your three-year, however many-mile warranty runs out, and CarShield's perfect for that. So now it kind of picks up where that left off. And that's kind of a sweet spot for a lot of CarShield people. That's why CarShield is already America's number one auto protection company. And you can take your car to your favorite mechanic or dealership to do the work, and CarShield gets the rest taken care of. All you have to do is call 800-665-2157. Mention the code ARMSTRONG. That's 800-665-2157. Or just go to CarShield.com. Use the code ARMSTRONG. A deductible may apply. CarShield.com. Use the code ARMSTRONG. Another one of the knocks that's regularly in a headline about the uh, the vaccine is uh, they still don't know whether or not you can still spread the virus if you've taken the vaccine. Well, they point out when you actually talk to scientists and doctors, and although no study has yet been done to be able to figure that out, it would be shocking if it's if you could still spread the virus once you've gotten the vaccine. If there's an example of a vaccine um, in widespread clinical use that has had this effect prevents disease but not infection i can't think of one that has ever happened wow it's never wow. happened before where they've come up with a vaccine for something like this and you could once you got the vaccine you could still spread it so right. while technically they don't know it would be amazing if that turned out to be the case that perspective is pretty important yeah i'd say so one if you get the vaccine you're not going to be able to catch and spread the disease almost certainly and two it's basically 100 percent effective that should be the headline 
everywhere for everyone about the vaccine. And to reiterate a couple of points we made earlier in the day, there breakthrough information about the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, a single shot. Now, this was not the Johnson Johnson single shot. This is one of the ones we were told is you got to get two shots. The first shot is 85% effective in preventing symptomatic disease. That means even the sniffles, 85%, one shot, about two to four weeks after it's administered, and so uh, everybody, all the governments around the planet are thinking, oh, man, maybe Britain got it right, because they were just giving everybody they could a first shot. And they said, we'll worry about the second shot when we get to the second shot. The Biden administration was still holding back second shots to have that supply. It's crazy. Throw it out to everybody. And again, if you're just tuning in, probably the oddest, funniest head scratch in this news about the Pfizer vaccine is it doesn't need to be super cold. You can just throw it with your frozen pizzas. In your, in your your hot pockets, Sean, you don't freeze hot pockets, do you? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There are freezer Do you? Freezer oh, okay, well, I, I stand uncorrected. Throw the Pfizer vaccine right there with your with your, your hot pockets and your hey, chicken nuggets. Hey, hey, Jim, why did you tell everybody it has to be 800 degrees below zero for the past two months? Uh, Ed, Ed told me it did. Hey, Ed, where'd you come up with that? I don't know. I just thought it did. That's what Steve I said. I don't remember. <laughs> Yeah, we're we're wondering why more media outlets aren't trying to dig into who first said it had to be frozen at a temperature that, like, n- no truck can do and very few hospitals. That was the giant challenge of this thing. It's got to be super cooled in storage, and then transportation will be very challenging, as it must be maintained at 45 degrees below zero every single second, or it will turn into a face-eating bacteria monster. <laughs> or or you just throw it in a freezer, and it's fine. You can put it in the did, same... Did nobody try it? You can put it in the same swan's truck with the chicken tenders and the ice cream right. and send it to any hospital you want to. Yeah. Or any Walgreens, for that matter, as long as they got a freezer. Did the guy who runs uh, BioNTech have a cousin in the freezer business or something like that? <laughs> One more thing on the really good news that's not getting enough attention, and this is a uh, opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal today from a guy named Dr. Macquarie. He's professor at the John Hopkins School of Medicine, um, so he's one of your top guys in the world. And he, his headline says, what? I'm sorry, I'm laughing because a good friend of my daughter's. Just got into Johns Hopkins, uh, their uh, grad stu- uh, master's or PhD program. Too many it's portals. really it's a great achievement, and she's a sweet girl, and we're really proud of her. The girls got into the master's programs at Johns Hopkins. Exactly, but I, I told Judy, you got to start saying Johns Hopkins. You can't say John Hopkins anymore. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I know it's weird. It's a little confusing. It is weird. Yeah, I don't like it. I refuse to. But anyway, well, he's, now was it <laughs> was it back in the day? Some people were named Johns. Like my name is my names would be Joes, or is it like the Johns uh, College got together with the Hopkins College? I always assumed that that's what it was. Yeah, okay, doesn't really matter. Um, they do fine work there. At, <laughs> you know, JH. <laughs> Should we have the Johns over for dinner tonight, or the Hopkinses? Let's have them both. Johns Hopkins dinner? <laughs> Why not? Um, I'll get more. I'll get more chicken nuggets out of the freezer. Where is it? It's next to the Pfizer vaccine. (laughs) I've used up all my time on the silliness. Sorry. What he wrote in the Wall Street Journal today is important, and I'll bring that to you. He thinks we're going to have herd immunity, like, in a month. Yes. Yes, we're going to reach herd immunity. And he said all the numbers point that direction. He can't figure out why more people aren't recognizing this. Yes, yes. So uh, that good news. We're going to talk to Lon He Chen about politics. We're not exactly sure we're going to talk to him about. But anyway, we'll talk about that 
coming up a little later this hour. It's going to actually be a pretty good hour. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. get this on because i think it's so interesting so this guy from johns hopkins he's one of the top people in the country he's got an opinion piece in the wall street journal today saying we're going to hit herd immunity real soon and uh, he can't understand why more people just aren't doing the simple math on this uh and he goes through the complicated math in a couple of paragraphs i won't weigh you down with but it's somewhere between uh, one and four people that have gotten COVID for every confirmed case. And then he does the averages over time, blah, 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 figures it out, and believes that we have somewhere around uh, 55 million or, uh, yeah, that's right, um, 55% of Americans that already have natural immunity, 55%. Because 20, 28 million confirmed cases, and then he does the averaging of the numbers over time of what we've known of people that, didn't know they had COVID, because there's way more people did, got it and didn't know it than people that did know it, got tested and did not. So you, you add all that together and you come up with 55% that already have natural immunity. You, then you add in the people that have gotten the vaccine, even, vaccine, even though it's a fairly low number, by the end of this week it'll be, or at the end of the week when he wrote this, um, at about 15%. So we're already at 70%. Of America, he says in a few weeks, by the first of April, we'll all read his sentence because it's pretty striking. Um, blah 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 blah. Uh, as there are, um, he explains what herd immunity is: as more people have been affected, most of whom have mild to no symptoms, there are fewer Americans left to be infected. At the current trajectory, I expect COVID will be mostly gone from our society by April, allowing Americans to resume normal life. Wow. By April. That's wow, I'm rooting five, for this guy. That's five weeks from now. Yeah. He believes you know, my, we're at 70% now. We're going to be up around 80 85% by the 1st of April, and it's done. It's over. My only quibbling with his reasoning, which I understand you didn't read the entire thing to us, but the, there's no reason to assume that there's no overlap between people who have natural immunity and people who got vaccinated. If at least half of cases are asymptomatic, I might, you know, have gotten the vaccine. I've already had it. So there could be some overlap, which could slow things down a little bit. But it's nonetheless, it's still really good news. I think he's right. It looked to me like he was really erring on the low side of how many people got it for every confirmed case. Well, yeah, I mean, you said it's somewhere between one and four times as many. And and we've heard numbers as high as 15. Early on, yeah, absolutely. So he is being pretty conservative. Um. That is that is wild, which then people would have to do the math on. So even without the vaccine, when would it have ended? Not quite as fast, but not that much later. Mm, possibly. Yeah. I wonder if they'll ever, ever be able to tease that out, uh, you know, investigate backwards, as it were. How did this thing actually end? Which, what were the most influential factors? Well, right, which means that it could have come in, did what it did, and left without spending all these gazillions of dollars and up and in our lives the way we did. Never let a crisis go to and waste. And have roughly the same number of dead people and everything else. Right, right. Um, that, 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 that'll be a heck of a, uh, you know, appendix to this story. Yeah. Yeah. 
Michael, uh, transition music. Could you do that for me? One, two, oh, one, two, three, four. Oh, you gotta turn it down at least. Oh my god, no, I said I didn't say like North Korean punishment music. It's a so, transition so music. So that's people who can't play the recorder playing Take On Me by Aha. Yeah, that's correct. So, uh, so it would seem. So, so it would, would seem. So it would so it would seem. <laughs> you sure that wasn't a slide whistle? I don't even know. Oh my goodness. It was terrible, whatever it was. It should be stamped out from the face of the earth. <laughs> but it worked. I don't remember what we were talking about. A Massachusetts public high school coach was fired from his job last month after complaining to school district officials, as well as parents, about the left-wing curriculum being inflicted on his daughter in middle school, according to a, and this is good news, federal lawsuit filed by Judicial Watch. At least our friends at Judicial Watch are looking out for this guy. Uh, Flynn, uh, uh, Coach Flynn, David Flynn, who'd become a football coach a number of years ago, nine years ago, he was a, an alum of the school. He raised issues last fall about his seventh grade daughter's world geography and ancient history class, which was supposed to be, well, what it was billed as. But instead, the teacher spent all her time on race, gender, stereotypes, wow. discrimination, wow. Uh, intersectionality, white supremacy, the rest of it. Fantastic. More on this story. Lonnie Chen's next. Don't go away. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Yeah, it's a sad thing to say, but that's classic Andrew Cuomo. Um, A lot of people in New York State have received those phone calls. Uh, You know, the bullying is nothing new. Um, I believe Ron Kim, and it's very, very sad. No public servant, no person who's uh, telling the truth should be treated that way. So this guy, Ron Kim in New York, a Democrat who had come forward and, and, you know, and and criticized the uh, Andrew Cuomo's office for clearly lying about how many people they killed with their bad policy, says that Cuomo called him up and threatened to ruin him. And so he went, you know, on the record with that to the press. Cuomo came out and said, I never said anything the same. And then a whole bunch of politicians came out yesterday, including that guy there you just heard, the freaking mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, saying, oh, yeah, uh, we've all been on the end of that kind of bullying from Andrew Cuomo. I know I have, so I absolutely believe uh, Mr. Kim. To me, I found that just stunning. So this guy and his family was able to run roughshod over New York for all these years, treating people like this and keep it a secret, more or less? How does it's that happen? It's got just a little bit of the feel of the mob to it. It really does. It? How does, but how, do you, how does that stay secret all these years? Let's talk to Lon He Chen, David and Diane Steffi, fellow in American Public Policy Studies at the Hoover Institution, host of the fabulous podcast, Crossing Lines with Lon He Chen. He joins us now. Lon He, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. Good morning, gentlemen. I just wonder, in general, the way politics works, what's the leverage the Cuomo family had over people to where they could treat people that way and have such enemies but still succeed? How does that even work? Well, you know, there's an old saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think when you have a regime that's been a a big part of state politics and a big part, particularly of the Democratic Party machinery, you know, the, the interesting part of this is that Cuomo is not uh, beating up on Republicans, right? I mean, he, he does. He does his fair share of that. 
but he's beating up uh, on people in his own party. And he uses the leverage that he and his family have. He uses the, the, the fact that they have a tremendous amount of influence in state politics. And this goes to the, the problem with dynastic politics in our country. Yeah, absolutely. These, these dynasties that, that think they're entitled to stay in power. And it goes beyond that. It goes from dynastic power to the problem with one party rule. When you have one party that's been in charge of a state for as long as Democrats have been in charge in New York. And by the way, it's not just a New York thing. It's an Illinois problem. And yeah, it's a California problem. When you have one party that's been in charge for as long as it has, this is what you get. You get bullies, you get thugs, you get people like Andrew Cuomo. Well, Andrew yeah. Cuomo's dad, Mario Cuomo, was he governor or mayor? Governor. Governor of New York uh, also. Course, so yeah, it goes way back. Yeah. And, and of course, you know Cuomo's brothers on CNN every night. So Right, of course. You know, yeah. there, it, it's, it's, it's not just politics. It's the politics, media, industrial complex in the state of New York that has perpetrated that has continued to to allow uh, Andrew Cuomo to perpetrate the things he's been perpetrating. And, you know, the fact that these stories are just coming to light now, really, no one should be surprised at, at his behavior. Well, I appreciate Jack being repulsed by that sort of politics because it is repulsive. But as a guy who grew up uh, right next to Mayor Daley's Chicago, the idea of brutal bullying and machine politics is pretty familiar. Hey, I understand there are, there are a lot of factions within New York uh, politics. I'm not really hip to New York State uh, politics. Lonnie, do you know much about that? Yeah, I don't follow it as closely, but I, I've heard that much from, uh, from, from folks who I know out there who follow it. There's a, you know, there's a Cuomo line, and, and you'll remember actually back in 1992 when Bill Clinton ran for president, a lot of people thought Cuomo was going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party that year. And, and it wasn't going to be this, you know, Arkansas no-name governor who, who, who nobody had ever heard of before. And it, it turns out, I, I mean, some of the stories go that Cuomo was brought down by some elements of, of the Democratic machine in his own state because there were elements of Cuomo uh, who, who weren't part of that Cuomo line, who didn't like him and decided that they wanted to help take him out. So, yeah, it, it gets pretty nasty out there. But, you know, that's the thing. These one-party uh, politics in states like New York and California, it can get pretty nasty within the Democratic Party in these states. That's interesting. Well, it's got to be about faction and personality because it's not about policy, generally speaking, if you have one-party right. rule. And obviously, uh, obviously, ahead, they, and obviously they think, gov- or like de Blasio and others, think Governor Cuomo's damaged enough that they can be honest all of a sudden. De Blasio saying, oh, yeah, I've been on the other end of those phone calls many times. Everybody has. Well, and, and bear in mind, de Blasio and Cuomo hate each other. They, they have had a, a difficult relationship for many years and de Blasio and Cuomo have had a number of really awkward news conferences where they basically sit each other like sit next to each other like uh, you know two passive aggressive uh, you know former spouses, and it, it, oh, it's it's very a very very awkward interaction between the two of them. Lonnie Chen of the Hoover Institution is on the line. Meanwhile, on the other coast, you have lunkhead governor of California Gavin Newsom, who it's looking like is going to be recalled. What do you make of that? Well, people are uh, are upset with him. And, you know, the, the funniest thing that I hear is when Newsom and his defenders argue that this is some Republican plot. I'll tell you something. I know a lot of people who live in, in my part of California, a very progressive part of California, otherwise are very supportive of Democratic politicians and Democratic politics, who are just fed up with Gavin Newsom because of his incompetence. 
And it, it has to do with not being able to get done the basic blocking and tackling. You know, things like can you run a system that gets people who need unemployment compensation, that compensation without giving money to a bunch of crooks? You know, can you uh, actually administer a vaccine program that's not worse than the vaccine program that exists in, you know, at least half of the other states? <laughs> and you get the schools open, you know, instead of in, instead of bowing continuously to pressure from special interests. Can you actually do what it takes, you know, to grow up, actually lead and get the schools open so we can stop denying a generation of kids the education that they need and deserve. That's the kind of stuff that really ticks well, people off. And it's not I, a Republican thing. It's not a Republican thing yeah, at all. I, I think his incompetence stems from the fact that he's incompetent is really what happens there. Well, well yeah, the, the Eastern media elite just say he was damaged by dining at the French Laundry during his own shutdown. Well, that absolutely was kind of a pivotal moment, but the, the administration has done nothing right. For those of you listening in the rest of the country, the the Newsom administration has fumbled everything. Their list of victories is empty. They're still waiting for number one. Their dry erase board has the number one on it, but nothing else. I was wondering since since you've worked with you know pretty successful candidates, you know working on Marco Rubio's campaign and Mitt Romney's campaign and stuff like that, how we identify these. These these politicians early on and think that guy could be president someday. And then we're so wrong. Like like Rick Perry was so not ready for the national stage. And Gavin Newsom was so not ready for the state stage, let alone the national stage. What goes on there with just the, the not recognizing what's underneath the veneer of of looking presidential? Well, I don't think Gavin Newsom was ready to be on the stage for a fourth grade class play, let alone uh, <laughs> being, being the, on the stage to be considered a presidential candidate. I mean, look, you're right. What happens is media hype develops. You know, you you, you got a guy who's some Beto is another great example of that. No, oh, please. Yeah, I mean, people people think, oh, here's a guy who's reasonably good looking. He can string together a sentence and a coherent thought every once in a while. Uh, yeah, let's make this guy president. And, and by the way, you know, Newsom has a tremendous amount of personal wealth, and I think that contributes to the conversation as well. Anytime you've got someone who gets into politics who's reasonably successful at some level and also has a lot of cash, they think, oh, here's someone who could be president. And and it, really what it goes to is we need to do a much better job of evaluating what our leaders are and are not doing. Absolutely. And if, 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 if Newsom had not been confronted with crisis, he could have skated right through, and who knows? He may have yep. been a leading candidate for the president. Oh, absolutely. But what 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 crisis does is it forces us to test our leaders, and it forces us to see who can lead and who can't. And Newsom has failed miserably at that task. And he's not the only one, by the way. Andrew Cuomo. We've talked about a few of the other governors who've done a horrible job. Uh, we really are able to see those who succeed and those who fail in a very real way. And it's an awful thing because people have suffered through this crisis. But it does allow us to see who who can lead and who can't. And, and I think that's a very, very important part of this whole episode we need to take from it. Well, now, I'm going to have to fist fight Jack during the commercials for bringing this up, but I'm ready to do it. I've been reading about Ron DeSantis in Florida. The flip How he's side, done a really yeah. good job, speaking of governors, and uh, people are starting to buzz about him in 2024. Any early take? Do you know him? Do you know his act? Is, is he one of those golden boys who's about to turn rusty? Or what do you think? I don't know him well. I've followed what he's done in Florida. And, and the answer is he's, he's tried to follow what the science has told him, but also his, his instincts about what the state needs, what the state's kids needs, and what the state's businesses need. And they've tried to balance 
between, you know, try, you know, being safe, keeping people safe, but also trying to get Florida reopened. And, and I think by and large, he's done a pretty good job. You know, there've been some hiccups, but you know, that's one of those things where I'm sure governor DeSantis would say, look, look at my record, look at my record to determine if I'm ready to lead or not. And, and that's something I wish more politicians would say is take a look at my record, not just the good parts, but, but all of it and make a decision based on everything I've done. Do you think I'm worthy of leading or not? And you know what? Not everything's going to be good. But I'll bet you if you look at Ron DeSantis's record and you compare it to what Gavin Newsom or Andrew Cuomo have done, Ron DeSantis comes out pretty favorably, <laughs> you know. So I'll take I'll take that bet any day of the week. It's faint praise, but that might be the appropriate phrase as we look for future leaders. Lon He Chen, David and Diane Steffi, fellow in American Public Policy Studies at the Hoover Institution, host of the podcast Crossing Lines with Lon He Chen. Lon He, thanks a million. Always great to talk. Appreciate yeah, really good. Great to be with you guys. Thanks. Yep. Yeah, I'm glad I brought any of that stuff up. There, there's some really interesting takes on that. Oh, yeah. Lon, he's always just are, terrific. Are, are we uh, maturing as a society to a point where maybe we can look past the, well, they look good on TV and have a clever line, so maybe they should be the most powerful person in the world based on that? Mm, the average voter is uh, mm, maybe a two-thirds wit. Not a half wit. God, he's absolutely, he's absolutely right. If there hadn't been a crisis, everything cruises along. Economy's decent, blah, blah, blah. Normal stories are in the news. Gavin easily cruises to top tier discussion among Democratic candidates. Right. Just based on Beto like adoration from the media. Yeah. Didn't have to do anything. Just, just stood there and looked pretty or creepy, depending on who you ask. <laughs> And now he's going to get recalled as governor, and his political career is over. Yeah, yeah. You know what would be interesting? Well, it will be interesting to follow is California is so utterly corrupt and ungovernable and mobbed up and one party and the rest of it. I don't know if if God Almighty himself could be the uh, successful governor of California. It may just be too big and messy and corrupt. I, I'm I'm still amazed. I know you grew up with corrupt politics, so you're you're not surprised by it. But that Andrew Cuomo could, in the modern era where people leak phone calls and texts and all kinds of stuff like that, still call up people and threaten them, just flat out threaten them and get away with it. Oh yeah, I will end your career, hundred percent. That's wild. Yeah, yeah. Well, his no. time's up too. Good, thank God, and the whole Cuomo family. It would sound like. Yeah, they don't teach you this as a kid, but uh, government is every bit as much forget about it. It is as it is. I'm just a bill, and I'm only a bill. You know, it's both. Forget about it. Yeah. Um. Looks like we're getting back into the Iran deal. Do we want to talk about that on a Friday? I don't know. Uh, you know what? I, I've got to read you this this piece that I I read from a, a young black man about Black History Month and what's wrong with it. We got a woman that was attacked by a bear while sitting on a toilet. I mean, that's a good story. No? Well, was the toilet like in the woods, or was it in her suburban uh, three-bedroom? It was in Alaska. It was an outhouse. We we don't have bears rummaging through our sewers, then. (laughs) (laughs) That's a charming obviously, It doesn't matter where you are. If you're sitting on the john, you don't want to be beset by a bear. (laughs) But I just... I was wondering how odd an occurrence I'm trying to figure out how vulnerable I am to such an occurrence. <laughs> right, and precisely, Sean. Yeah, well, that's what I'm driving at. Details so, on the yeah. way. Armstrong and Getty.
The Armstrong and Getty Show. Sat down on the toilet seat and something just immediately bit me in the butt. I'm like, okay, I'm going to open the lid and look. And I take the headlamp and I grab the lid of the toilet seat and I lift it up. And right there, right at the level of the toilet seat, like maybe an inch or two below, is a gigantic bear face looking right back up at me. It felt like just a single, like, puncture. Maybe it wasn't even a bite. Like, it might have been a swipe with his claw, potentially. I mean, I'm definitely going to look down in the hole (laughs) next time. That's a woman who used an outhouse in the woods, and it turns out there was a bear down in the toilet. Oh, I assumed it came at her out of the woods, or it came up from below? Yeah, she feels like a scrape on her buttocks. What was that? Stands up, looks down, and sees the face of a bear. She she probably thought, oh my God, it's some sort of pervert. And she looks down there expecting to see some pervo human, which is bad enough, and then... She looks into the steely gaze of the bear. It would take it a while for your mind to, like, wrap, you know, it would see it, recognize it's a bear, but in the way that, you know, just putting it all together would be jarring. You would not so, expect that, is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you what, if I'm a husband and my wife says, honey, there's a bear in the toilet, I'm thinking, oh, man, that's going to take all day Saturday. <laughs> that's a honeydew that is just not going to be pleasant. <laughs> Does a bear poop in the woods? I don't know. I poop in my pants if I see one in the toilet. I'll tell you that. Um, that, that re- so that reminds me. I brought up the idea the other day to my son. Somehow it came up with the bears. And I said uh, something about running downhill. And my wife said, what? I said, you run downhill if you're being chased by bears. She said, where the hell did you hear that? She said, oh, who, who hated you told you that as a kid? <laughs> Shh, Quiet. <laughs> I said, is that not what you do? She said, no. I said, I'm pretty sure that's what you do. She said, I grew up around bears. I've never heard anybody say that. No, that is a, uh, that's a, an old wives' tale. It is? I didn't know that. It is an yeah. old wives' tale. Bears will run 30 miles per hour downhill. You'll be thinking, stupid bears. <laughs> Things chewing on your leg. <laughs> I fooled you, bear. You don't know. Wait a second. So that's yeah. not true. Correct. I have had that knowledge for decades. Good thing I was never chased by a bear. Old wives' tale. Completely different topic. Bear-free. I love this piece by Jeremy Hunt. Jeremy is, I believe he's a student in one of your prestigious universities. He's an Army veteran and a young black man. He wrote this piece. In all of the black history tributes on TV, commercials, social media this month, you'll be hard-pressed to find one that features a single black conservative leader. Cancel culture warriors routinely exclude legends like Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, U.S. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, and former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice from history, just because of their political views. Yet it's clear that many of the same people who seek to cancel conservative icons lack even a basic understanding of American history. For example, Condoleezza Rice, the most powerful black woman in American history, prior to a couple of weeks ago. Right. Right. And, you know, the, the reason this all bothers me, maybe it's just because I'm an individualist and, and a libertarian, but it, it, I am sickened on behalf of uh, our, our fellow Americans who happen to be of dark skin that they're condescended to so much and treated like, you know, herd animals that must think one way and must vote one way. It just it's incredibly insulting. Anyway, 
Uh, he writes, for example, San Francisco Public Schools gleefully publicized their countywide commemoration of Black History Month. In addition to their social media and blog posts, they even released a 2021 Black History Resource Guide to punctuate their embrace of the holiday. But here's the irony. Just a week prior, they voted to strip a school of Abraham Lincoln's name. One of the men Black History Month was originally intended to recognize. 1926, Carter G. Woodson, known as the father of black history, created the first Negro History Week, held in the second week of February, specifically to honor the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist. I did not know that. Yeah. In the decades that followed, Negro History Week evolved into what we now celebrate as Black History Month. Um, then he goes on, uh, cancel culture. Oh, black history has always been marked by spirited debates and ideological diversity. Leaders with opposing political views, starkly different approaches to equality, challenged each other in the marketplace of ideas. Contrary to President Biden's claim that you ain't black if you don't support the Democratic Party's nominee, history teaches us that the black community was never a monolith. He gets into uh, Booker T. Washington clashing with uh, W.E. Du Bois. Um, he gets into Malcolm X clashing with Dr. Martin Luther King out in the open, trading ideas, putting them out there in the marketplace and, and black folks being treated like adults saying, who do you agree with and why? As opposed to you must think one way. It's a really brilliant piece. We'll post it at armstrongandgetty.com. Those are excellent points. Jeremy Hunt, the author. Why would God develop a beast that can't run downhill? It makes pretty good sense. Armstrong and Getty.